Now, uh, <clears throat> today we're going to get into 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, I want to begin uh, like this. So, uh, Anne Rice is an author. Uh, she's, a, she's a famous author, and she writes in the uh, genre of gothic vampire novels. Uh, she wrote the famous Vampire Chronicles, and, and she, she actually made uh, news in 1998 when she converted from atheism to Christianity. It was a big deal uh, back in the late 90s. And she was a Christian for several years. She actually wrote a couple uh, Christian-themed books. But then, uh, t- after about 10 years of being a Christian, she, uh, she walked away from her faith in a very public, in a very overt way. And uh, this is what she writes about uh, her leaving Christianity on Facebook. She said this, For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or to being part of Christianity. It is simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. So uh, you may have noticed here as she, uh, as she describes her experience with Christians, and maybe you relate to it, you know, as, as you've experienced Christianity. But, but notice the uh, adjectives that she uses. She calls Christians a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. And what strikes me about this is how different her uh, perception and description of the Christian community is from the description that Peter gives us in our passage this morning. Now, if you remember, uh, we're in a series in the book of 1 Peter, and Peter's writing to exiles. And uh, he's essentially been telling them how to live out their faith in a hostile environment where they are in the minority. He's uh, telling us how the church should engage with the culture. And uh, he's been uh, talking about how we should engage with uh, politics and racism and last week with marriage and and a lot of different things. And today he begins the passage in verse 8 with finally. Now when Peter says finally here, he's not concluding his letter. In fact, he will go on for two more chapters in the letter. But he's using finally in the sense of in summary. In this passage, uh, Peter is summarizing everything that he said so far in the letter. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of go back and review and remind ourselves of what Peter's basic message is. And so what Peter does in this passage is he gives us three marks, three marks of Christians as they engage in the non-Christian culture around them. I think this is especially relevant for us. As I was reading it this week, I thought how especially relevant uh, Peter's message in this passage is for us. Because we're in an election year, and uh, it's going to be a hostile, disputatious, and argumentative year for us. And what Peter's going to say here is that as we're in a hostile environment, the Christians ought to be different. We ought to be an alternative. We ought to be a breath, breath of fresh air in this hostile world. We shouldn't mirror the culture. We should be different. Here he gives us three ways that Christians should be different. So let me give you a roadmap right up front. He's going to say that we ought to to have provocative unity. Secondly, he says we need to be marked by verbal non-retaliation. I'll show you what that means when we get there. And then finally, we need to be marked by true tolerance. Three things that, that set us apart 
uh, that help us engage in a hostile environment. So first, uh, Peter begins with uh, exhorting us to provocative unity. So let's look in verse 8. Finally, he says, or in summary, all of you. And so when he says all of you, he's, he's talking here about how Christians should relate to each other. This is how Christians ought to treat other Christians. And then he gives us a list here. He says, I want you to have unity and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. He gives us a list here. But at the top of the list, he says, I want you to have unity of mind. And some translations, if you've got a different one, some of them say, I want you to be of the same mind. Others say, I want you to be of one mind. Some even say, I want you to be agreeable. Peter here is talking about unity. Now, is Peter saying here that as Christians, we need to agree with each other about everything? Does he say that to be one mind is that Christians in this community need to be on the same page about everything? No, that is not at all what Peter is talking about. In fact, what Peter's talking about is something that is very different than that. Uh, To be on the same page about everything is uniformity. And to be uh, what Peter is calling us to here is something called unity. And the two are very different. Uh, This is not a uniformity of opinion, but a unity of disposition. And what I mean by that is that Christian unity is very distinct. It's made, of, made up of diversity. And it is, uh, it, it's, you've got to understand the difference between essentials and non-essentials. So as Christians, we ought to be of the same mind when it comes to essentials. There are basic teachings that just define what it means to be a Christian. And we ought to agree on those things, like the deity of Christ or the Trinity or the bodily resurrection from the dead or the second coming of Christ. These are all things that define what it means to be a Christian. And we ought to be on the same page when it comes to these basic beliefs. But there are non-essentials that that all of us have different uh, opinions about. And to be united as a Christian is not the same as being on the same page with, 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 in regards to all of these different opinions. And so in this room, we disagree about a lot of things. There are some of you in this room that would never, ever vote for Trump. You just would never do that. And some of you are voting for Trump in the next election. I know because you've got a sign in your yard. There are some of you that, that believe certain things about the coronavirus, and uh, you've, you've posted things on Facebook about what a certain doctor says about it. There are some of you who believe the exact opposite about that. There are some of you who believe things about wearing masks, and some of you who believe things about not wearing masks. There are some of you who believe that Christians can dance, and some of you maybe believe that Christians can't dance. Uh, I personally believe that some Christians can and some Christians can't. And I won't, okay? So I won't even go there because I would look like a dork. Some of you don't drink alcohol. Some of you brew it in your basement. The Christian idea of unity is unity in diversity, not uniformity. It was this way from the very beginning. So if you look at the uh, disciples that Jesus called into his group, He didn't call people from the same kind of social class or the same group. He didn't call all Pharisees or all Sadducees or all fishermen. He kind of pulled people from different places in society. Some people from places that were just radically different. And so, for example, he chose Simon the Zealot. And a zealot was somebody who was against the Roman government. They were violently opposed to Rome and anybody who worked for Rome. 
He also called Matthew the tax collector. And a tax collector is a person who worked for Rome. And he says, I want you guys to get along. So unity and diversity was the plan from the very beginning. Paul the Apostle uses a wonderful metaphor of the body. And just as a body is one that is made up of many members, so the Christian community is one group that is united in disposition but is diverse in opinion. I love that uh, Winston Churchill once said, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. Paul would agree with that. So Peter says, I want you to be marked by unity in this culture, in this culture that is so divided and polarized, in this culture that's fighting all the time and, and just always at each other's throats. He says, I want you as Christians to be united together even though you have different beliefs from one another. Now, of course, this is incredibly diff- difficult. And so Peter goes on and he says, I want you to be of one mind. I want you to be, have brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind and sympathy. He says, if you're ever going to have this kind of unity, you've got to have brotherly love and humility and sympathy. And I love uh, how one person uh, defined the word sympathy. They said, sympathy is the idea that I feel your pain in my heart. The reason why we we have a hard time getting together is because we look at people that have different opinions and we say, I don't understand how anybody ever could believe something like that. But sympathy says, I can understand and I will try to understand and I will get in your shoes and I may not believe what you believe or understand why you have that opinion, but I am gonna understand you and sympathize with you. William Barclay said, as long as self is the most important thing in the world, there can be no sympathy. Sympathy depends on a willingness to forget self, to step outside of self, to identify oneself with the pains and sorrows of others. It is only when we die to self that we can live to others. Sympathy comes to the heart when Christ reigns within. So you let go of self and you get yourself into somebody else's shoes and because you do that, you're able to unite together. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a Welsh doctor and he was uh, decorated in his field. He was just a really uh, well-respected doctor and he he became a Christian and then later became a a minister of the gospel. And his first call was to go to a small little church in Wales and it was a blue-collar church where it was a little fishing village. And he went as a doctor to minister there. And he said at one time, he says, you know what? I could tell that the power of God was working in my life. When I felt more kinship with this little fisherwoman, and a fisherwoman was like a blue-collar you know, worker in his congregation. When I felt more kinship with this fisherwoman than I did with my colleagues in the hospital. And when you feel more kinship with your Christian brother and sister, more than you do with someone of your own political party, more than you do someone of your own social class, more than you do even someone of your own race, then you know the power of God is at work in you. And this is why I call it a provocative unity because it's a unity when people look at us, they say, I don't understand how they're getting together. I don't understand how they love each other or why they love each other. They shouldn't love each other, Republican and Democrat white and black, upper class and lower class. They shouldn't love one another. I wonder what's going on in that community. You see, if we'll begin to demonstrate a provocative unity, 
This will be a breath of fresh air in this polarized, divided country of ours. Can we do that? Paul says, stop fighting about non-essentials. I want you to care about people more than you care about your opinions. I want your relationships with one another to be far more important than your political beliefs. In other words, I want you to be one, of one mind. That's the first thing that, that uh, Peter gets at here. And, and he moves on and he, he's going to give us a second mark of engagement, how we ought to uh, engage in the world as, as a minority. And that second thing is, is what I've called verbal non-retaliation. And so look at verse uh, 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do Evil. Now, Peter goes on and he says, now, the second thing I want, that I want to be true about you guys as you engage is I want you to have a, a commitment to verbal non-retaliation. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice uh, in this passage, Peter starts talking about words. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, uh, revile is a word we don't use anymore. Uh, so I looked it up in, in, in the dictionary. Revile means this. It means to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. So this is what you see on Facebook. This is what you see during political campaigns. This is what you see in, in a polarized culture. You see reviling. You see harsh criticism. Angry, insulting insults. And what you need to know is that in Peter's culture, uh, this is what Christians were facing reviling. This is what, they were facing this sort of thing. And so uh, they were living in a hostile culture, and we know from what uh, Sam said a, a few weeks back, that they weren't so much facing physical persecution yet. That would come, but they weren't yet being thrown to the lions. They weren't yet being thrown in prison. They weren't yet being uh, physically abused for their beliefs, but they were facing verbal criticism. They were being mocked and belittled and scorned in the culture. We know that uh, non-Christians called Christians cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. They know that they were uh, being accused of incest because they spoke of loving brothers and sisters. Uh, they even called uh, Christians atheists because they refused to worship the gods. So they were facing uh, verbal criticism, belittled, uh, mocked in the culture. Now, somebody says, well, this is, at least they weren't being physically abused, and it's just words, and we all know that sticks and stones uh, can break my bones, and words will never hurt me. Well, we know that that's not true. We know that words are incredibly hurtful. They are powerful, and they do major damage. Physical abuse does things to you. Words do things in you. And this is why James says, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, and sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. James is saying verbal abuse is horrible, and it is hurtful, and it does damage. Words go right in, and they cut right through you. 
Many of you are still suffering from wounds you got from words that were spoken to you a long time ago. What do Christians do when we are verbally belittled? What do we do when we're reviled? Well, this is what Peter says. Number one, he says, I want you to resist the, the uh, desire to repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. So he says, uh, when somebody reviles you online, resist that temptation to, to get on there and write something back. Tit for tat. You know, give them a zinger back. Resist the temptation to retaliate. And then he says, instead, I want you to bless. And the word bless is an interesting word. It's a Greek compound word that means, uh, that literally is uh, eu eulogos. It's where we get the word eulogy from, and it literally means good word. When somebody speaks an evil word to you, Peter says, I want you to give them a blessing in return. Now, you can imagine if people did this. If we in the culture, instead of being outraged and angry when people hurt us, if we offered a blessing instead, do we take offense or strike back or do we seek to extend kindness or offer a gentle answer when we butt heads with a colleague, when our views are criticized online or when someone rejects us because of our faith, our race, or our social rank, or when we feel misunderstood? What would happen in your life if you were committed to verbal non-retaliation, if you didn't enter into the cycle of violence and verbal hatred and instead spoke words of blessing, that would be powerful. Why should we do this? Well, Peter says it's because this, to this you were called. It's important to know that. Uh, this is our calling as Christians. You say, well, it's not, I'm a fighter. This is not my personality. I just go after people. That's what I do. I'm just, I'm a truth teller. You can't expect me to do anything different. Yes, I can, because it is your calling as a Christian. Because it goes back to the teachings of Jesus where he says, turn the other cheek. And when people hurt you, I want you to offer a blessing to them instead. Of course, this went against uh, everything that uh, was in Peter's personality. You remember when Jesus was arrested? What did Peter do? Pulled out his sword and he cut off the soldier's ear. Uh, you know, he was probably aiming for his head, but he was a bad shot, you know, so he got the guy's ears, his ear. And, and, Peter, and Jesus said, Peter, you don't understand what my kingdom's about. Well, this is not a kingdom of retaliation. If I wanted to, I could call a squadron of soldiers right now, but this is not what we're about. We're a peaceful community that offers blessing when we are insulted. And this is powerful when, when you see it in the culture. Some of you may uh, remember the, um, the fight that, that went on between a guy named uh, Pete Davidson and Dan Crenshaw. And uh, you'll see their picture. It's going to come up here on the screen. You remember those guys? Uh, uh, Pete Davidson is the guy in the, the pink sweatshirt. Dan Crenshaw is the, the one with the eye patch. And uh, this was a few years back, and some of you may remember, but uh, Pete Davidson is a, um, he's on Saturday Night Live, and he does the little skits uh, on there, the, the new skits. And there was one night when uh, Pete Davidson uh, crudely mocked uh, Congressman-elect Dan Crenshaw because of his eye patch. 
And this was politically motivated. He hated his political views. Dan Crenshaw is a Republican. Of course, Pete Davidson is a far left-winging uh, d- Democrat. And so he just mocked him on the air and just made fun of him in this skit. But it was a low blow. It was a bad thing to do because Dan Crenshaw is a, is a war hero. And so Pete Davidson just got all sorts of public backlash. People just mocked him and said, how could you do this? And, and what is wrong with you? That's a low blow. And Davidson was just depressed by this outrage. And, and even on, he went online and just voiced how depressed he was and how he was just filled with uh, self-loathing and he couldn't see a reason to live because of it. And then Dan Crenshaw did something very countercultural. He reached out to Davidson. Uh, behind the scenes, he just befriended him. And he, and he encouraged him and he, and he reached out to him. And this led to uh, Pete Davidson inviting Dan Crenshaw on Saturday Night Live, and they did the skit together. And uh, Crenshaw, in the skit, praised Davidson's father, who was a a New York City uh, firefighter who died in in September 11th. And it was an amazing skit, and at the end of the segment, when they they thought they were off the camera, uh, Davidson leaned over to Crenshaw and whispered, you're a good man. And I love what Scott Saul said about this. Instead of firing back, Crenshaw built a bridge. Instead of shaming, scolding, he spoke tenderly. Instead of seeking vindication through retaliation, he sought friendship through peacemaking. Instead of adding to the cycle of outrage, he soundly defeated outrage with unconditional love. Christians should be committed to verbal non-retaliation. When we are cursed, We return the curse with a blessing. What would it look like in our culture if we were people that just spoke words of blessing in the face of hostility? If we refused to return angry, vitriolic words online, but instead encouraged and blessed and reached out to people, it would make an incredible difference and we would be a breath of fresh air in this hostile world of ours. The third thing I want to point out that Peter says here is that Christians must be a community marked by true tolerance. You see this in verse 13. So Peter goes on and he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you for good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now in this passage, Peter is talking about tolerance. Christians showing tolerance to people that disagree with them. Now you look at it and you say, no, no, this is not about tolerance. He says in verse 14, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's talking about suffering uh, rejection and how to suffer rejection as a Christian. Well, if you think about the original meaning of the word tolerance, it had to do with suffering pain. Uh, someone who you've got a pain tolerance, right? If you're in the hospital, uh, you know, my wife has a very high pain tolerance. If I had a baby, I'd be crying on the floor, right? So some people have a high tolerance for pain. And it's kind of, this is what he's saying here. He's saying, you are going to suffer the pain of rejection for following Jesus, and I want you to be tolerant in the face of this rejection. 
Don't be outraged easily. Don't be sensitive and always wanting to fight back. But instead, he says, I want you to be tolerant. And then he goes on and he has this wonderful picture where he says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And here Peter is getting at the heart of what it means to be true, truly tolerant. Now in our culture, there, there, are two, there are two tolerances. There's the old tolerance and the new tolerance. And just please hang with me for just a second here. So there's the new tolerance that people talk about being tolerant nowadays. It is, and it essentially means that a tolerant person is one who believes that all beliefs are equally valid. Right, you don't have strong convictions, but you th- all beliefs are equally valid. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. For me, and, and I'm not going to say that you're wrong. This is tolerance. But this is not the original old tolerance. Old tolerance is almost exactly the opposite. It means to disagree with somebody, but to disagree with them agreeably. It means that although I've got a strong conviction about what is true, I'm going to treat those who disagree with me with respect and gentleness. This is tolerance. It's not having no beliefs. It's having deep beliefs, but holding them in a gentle and respectful way. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. How do you treat people who disagree with you? Are you able to treat somebody who is on the other side of the political spectrum who doesn't, or maybe someone who doesn't believe what you believe about Jesus, are you able to disagree with them but in a way that is respectful and gentle? Where you listen to them and you understand them? And this verse here where Peter says, he gives almost a perfect balance. He says, always be ready with an answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying, I want you to understand what you believe. I want you to believe it deeply and have reasons for why you believe it's true. Not wishy-washy or I think I believe this or people can believe whatever. No, I believe this and I know why I believe this and I've studied it. Yes, do that. But at the same time, I want you to hold that deep belief belief with gentleness and respect. And people are always falling off one side or the other on this one. There are people who are just, they know exactly what they believe, but they're just so mean about it. And then there are some people that are just nice and gentle, but they have no clue what they believe. And Peter says, I want you to to know what you believe, but I want you to believe it in a way that is winsome and gentle. I remember a couple books that were written. Uh, One was The God Delusion by uh, Richard Dawkins. He's an atheist, and he wrote this book. Some of you may have read it. And in the book, he not only says that atheism is is right, he says that if you're a Christian, you're just stupid. And he was just so vitriolic in this book, and he was just so disdainful. But then there was a Christian book that was written against it. It was called Atheist Delusion written by David Bentley Hart. I I normally love what this guy writes. But this particular book, although it was well-reasoned and well-argued, it was just mean. And I had a non-Christian friend who read the book. His name is Ashley. And I said, what did you think of the book? Like, uh, did you think he had good arguments? He says, yeah, I guess he had good arguments, but I couldn't finish the book because it was just so intolerant. Peter says, I want you to know what you believe but I want you to hold your beliefs in a way that treat people who disagree with you with respect and gentleness. 
So uh, in summary, uh, this is a quote by Will Willimon, and he kind of sums up what Peter, I think, is getting at in this passage. He says, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds community, that something decisive must have happened in history. He's saying, I want you to be different. As Christians, I want you to be different not only in your beliefs, but also in the way you navigate your disagreements. Are we marked by unity as the world is divided and polarized? Are, can we engage with people without retaliating against them? Are we truly tolerant? I love how Peter ends the passage in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter ends here on Jesus. Why should we act like this? How can we act like this? Well, Peter goes back to Jesus. It all goes back to Jesus. Jesus is both the model and the motivation for how we should engage with the culture. And here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus treated you with gentleness and respect. You were hostile to God. And no matter how badly you've hurt him, no matter how badly you've offended him, no matter how deeply your sins are against him or how long you've committed those sins, God responded to our sins by forgiving them, by reaching out to us, and welcoming, welcoming us, welcome, he invites us in. The good news of the gospel is before Jesus asks us to do any of this in the culture, he does it to us first. He loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how badly you've offended him. He loves you, and he's always there to welcome you in. He's always there with gentleness. He paid the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And because he's done this for us, we can do it for people outside the church. Because Jesus has loved us at our worst, we can love others at their worst. Because Jesus has forgiven us of all of our wrongs, we can forgive others who have wronged us. Because Jesus Christ treated us with gentleness and respect, instead of pouring out punishment and rejection for our sins and offenses, we can treat others with gentleness and respect who disagree with us. This is costly. It cost Jesus his life, but because he did it for us, we can now extend it to others. So let me give you some things to do this week um, in light of all this. I, I want to encourage you, number one, to join a community group. So if you are not in a community group, um, I want to encourage you to, to join. Because it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I love other Christians and I'm united to other Christians, but do you actually have a human Christian in your life that you have to love? Community groups are a place where you can get together and talk with one another even though you are very different from one another. Uh, you could sign up, again, online on Facebook or on the website, but sign up. It's easy. Some of them are just on Zoom. You could do it in your jammies, right? So join a community group. I want to encourage you also to uh, bless somebody 
who is hostile to you. If, I don't know if there's anybody in your life, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody who disagrees with you um, online, but, but I want you to somehow find a way to bless somebody who has hurt you with their words. Find a way to do it. Display verbal non-retaliation this week. And I also want to encourage you to care more about people than your opinions. So find somebody who disagrees with you and invite them to lunch. Find somebody different and, and, and engage with them that says, I value your relationship more than I value my own opinion. And if we do that, we will be a counterculture in this disdainful, vitriolic, and hostile world. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this passage, uh, this summary passage that gives us the way to engage. Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us the, the strength, the inner security uh, that comes from the gospel uh, so that we can love our enemies, so that we can um, display this provocative unity. God, remind us how deeply we are loved in the gospel so that, that we will be so full of your grace and your sense of acceptance that we could go out and be accepting and loving and truly tolerant. God, give us, give us peace so that we could make peace in this world. And I pray ultimately, God, that, that our community would be winsome. Lord, that, that the way we posture ourselves in this world would be attractive and would draw people to Jesus. And I pray that you would do this in us in Jesus' name.